Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Television has evolved enormously from its early beginnings as radio with pictures. For its first many decades, TV productions were usually cheap, quick, and far less respected than feature films. Movie stars shied away from them, as did the makers of those feature films, fearing that if they worked in TV, their careers were running downhill fast. Of course, there have always been exceptions. We revere the old Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Star Trek, Night Stalker, X-Files, and a ton of others made the most of their meager assets and stretched their dollars creatively. In the horror genre, at least, Tales from the Crypt from HBO made a difference in the course of terror television. Because it was uncensored and uninterrupted by commercials, there was far more room for creative expression, and though their budgets were far from huge, there was still more room to make little movies rather than TV episodes. And you had directors like William Friedkin, Toby Hooper, Richard Donner, Walter Hill, William Malone, and even me, people who were passionate about our genre making classic television. As the pay networks and the streamers have proliferated over the years, so too have horror series, and the budgets expended upon them, in many cases, are greater than the horror features that are released. And the talent behind them is very high-end. Most recently, we have Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, hosted, created, and guided by our Oscar-winning friend. The 2000s have brought us such visual and visceral TV treats as Hannibal, Penny Dreadful, American Horror Story, Black Mirror, The Walking Dead, The Haunting of Hill House, Midnight Mass, and, among others, I say blushingly, our own masters of horror. Horror on TV is ubiquitous, and I'm happy to say that quality horror on TV is ubiquitous as well. TV has reached and in a lot of cases, surpass the cinematic quality of television, and we are all the richer for it. Our guest, Mark Mylod, has an astounding and diverse resume of high-end feature quality television under his belt, but he's also the director of one of the year's best genre feature films, The Menu. We'll find out about all of the ingredients that went into this tasty meal right now. Mark, it's so great to meet you and have you on the slab. Thanks for having me. Yikes. uh, Our our show is all about filmmaking and filmmakers and their inspirations and aspirations. When you were a kid in England, what were the things that excited you? What were the TV shows and the movies that inspired you and make you think, gee, maybe I could do this one day? Yeah, the the asper I could do this one day that didn't come f- uh, around for a long time. My, my dad was a policeman. My my mom worked at, my mum worked in a bra factory, so it wasn't exactly an environment where that was uh, you know a, a possibility. When when we had career day at school, it was you know which armed forces do you want to go into? Um, oh. So it wasn't really. You know, I never saw it as a as a remote possibility for a long time. But I think my earliest 
memory was really going, we, we had a family trip to the local cinema to see when I was quite a young kid to see The Spy Who Loved Me, the Bond movie. Um, uh-huh. And um, and my family were not exactly cinephiles, so we just turned up. And as it turned up, you know, uh, about halfway through the movie, um, I remember walking in just as the, the the car goes off the water, uh, off the pier into the ocean and starts to transform into a submarine. Uh, I think it's a Lotus, the car, and or Lamborghini. Um, um, and I remember just being completely mesmerised by this and, uh, and just the sheer scale and the magic of the movies was just... Um, I was just completely hooked at that point. And then the movie ended and we sat around and got an ice cream and waited for the movie to begin. And I had this fabulous stunt at the beginning with the, the ski chase and culminating in, in Bond parachuting off the cliff, um, which I think was shot up in Baffin Island or something. And, and then of course the parachute opens and it's the big Union Jack with the classic Bond sting to accompany it. Um, and I was just hook, line and sinker at that point for the magic of the movies. And the, right, and so the scope and the magic and the stunts and all of that is what kind of threw you in. That, yeah. And then the same year, because I remember badgering my parents to, I want to see another one. I want to see another one. I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out quite shortly after that, um, at least in our hood, you know, which is in South Devon in England. So it wasn't exactly, you know, it wasn't exactly Hollywood. Um, Yeah, it was 1978 when it came out here. Yeah. Um, uh, and when that movie came out on a whole new level of, you know, of wonder um, with this with this world that Spielberg creates. So I think the double whammy of those two, I mean, what a way to start your cinema, you know, your cinema life with such kind of big epics and in such different ways. Well, I've rarely seen a career as diverse as yours in television and features, just ranging from starting out in comedy, BBC comedy, and going on through fantasy and drama and all of these things. And the the Spielberg thing must have been interesting going back to doing, working with him for uh, Minority Report. And I was the original story editor on the original Amazing Stories and wrote 10 of them and directed one of them. Wow. So to see that you did amazing stories as well. I also directed two episodes of Once Upon a Time, which you directed the pilot for. Oh, so, man, you know, so we both obviously know Adam and Eddie. That's a connective tissue there as well, isn't it? Such I'm, great people. Yeah. Lovely, aren't they? And that pilot for Once Upon a Time was just a gift. It really was. It was such, you know, it was such a, it was such a unique and beautiful concept told with that lovely warmth that both of them have. It was such a kind of lovely ode to, to, to the, you know, to our childhood really and our childhood experience of those, of those Disney characters and those and fairy tale characters. I yeah. just loved it where it was coming from. And as with any, um, you know, network pilot, there was this almost ludicrously short pre-production time to get it all together and a desperate scramble to achieve any kind of you know cohesive vision for it but it was just um just had an absolute blast with it and it was made with such love um so I couldn't wait to work with them again after that oh it was such an exciting atmosphere to work in everybody was exciting Robert Carlyle was amazing to work with the entire cast but it must have been a thrill for someone whose second movie experience was Close Encounters of the Third Kind to be doing Minority Report, to be doing amazing stories with, with your hero. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I had to pinch myself when I was doing the Minority Report um, that I, I was granted, you know, a meeting with Stephen to, just to talk him through what I wanted to do with, you know, someone that would share the name of his absolutely brilliant sci-fi film. Um, so 
and I was terrified going into the room and this room and as you walk through Spielberg's office there's the original um you know prop with uh, with frozen hand solo from uh, um from uh, uh, from the empire strikes back and uh, and you go into this meeting room and and there on the wall in a case is um is rosebud from um, um, um citizen kane yeah thank you and um so it's you know you're walking into this wonderland uh, and then Stephen comes in and suddenly you're not looking at a media mogul you're chatting to a somebody who's so passionate about storytelling um films and you're swapping references and I'm sure I'm on my storyboards and, and my texture references and, and and tears and and the time just disappears and and, and it was just it was just the most magical conversation it really was um and it also helped that he approved of the you know the, the direction I was taking with the, with the pilot um I was really lovely meeting is just um yeah the, the, everything that i hoped there's that old adage about never meet your heroes but i'm really glad i met him oh you and me both yeah, <laughs> yeah. um how did it begin for you you had a like me i had a very blue collar life but it was in los angeles but had nothing to do with the arts no one in my family had anything to do with the arts yours it was the same. So how did you make that progression into becoming a filmmaker? Um, I'll do the quick version. And it sounds uh, the part of it, the first bit I'll tell you sounds like I've made it up. And I swear it's absolutely the truth with no exaggeration. Um, I was at school and I was going to do, I was obsessed with being in the Royal Navy. I was also obsessed with Jacques Cousteau and his underwater world, my favorite TV show. Wow. As a, and um, so I decided that I was going to, um, join the Royal Navy, get sponsored by the Royal Navy because I didn't want to have, uh, because I, I wanted to have some money when I was at college. And, and I would go and study sharks uh, and marine zoology at university. And then I would go into the Navy. And bizarrely, that's exactly what started to happen um, because I was quite a strong student at that point. And I was going to do chemistry, physics and biology as my advanced level subjects under the uh, uh, English system. Um, so a, a, a lieutenant commander from the Royal Navy came to the house. I went through initial interviews at Dartmouth Royal Naval College, and that was all due to happen. And then during my final year at what, what you call senior year at high school, um, all my friends were doing drama um, and they needed somebody to help them with their performance pieces. And I, so I'd read a couple of things that my friend Dominic had sent me, particularly a, a Harold Pinter play called The Caretaker and a couple of Shakespeare plays. Um, and I was just besotted. I was absolutely besotted. Um, so I started spending a lot more time reading plays and actually delving into helping these guys with their performance pieces and pretty much forgot all about my academic studies. The result was that I completely failed um, <laughs> high school. Um, so, so suddenly the opportunity to, to, to go to university and become a marine zoologist and next Jacques Cousteau wasn't on the table. Um, so my parents, once they got over the shock, said, so you can go back and retake the exams. And I said, no, I'm going to go to London. Um, bear in mind, I lived in the sticks way away from anywhere. I'm going to go to London. I'm going to work in theatres and try and try and become a director. Um, and they laughed that off. And I'd saved up some money from working in the market over the summer where I grew up. So I hitchhiked up to London, um, which took most of the day. And when I got there, I jumped on the subway, got out at a place that I knew was somewhere in the middle called Piccadilly Circus, and, and I wandered around looking for theatres. Um, this is the unlikely bit, by the way. Um, and I saw a big theatre down the road. It was called the Haymarket Theatre Royal, one of the grand theatres of the West End. And I walked around, found my way around the back to the stage door and walked in and said, hey, I've just come up from Devon. And I was wondering if you've got any jobs. 
And the guy looked me up and down and called up Dick Tavner, the master carpenter, and he looked me up and down and said, yep, you start at 2 p.m. tomorrow. Um, so um, so I had a job within an hour of getting to London. So I frantically... Holy shit. Yeah, so I ran around desperately trying to find somewhere to stay that night. And uh, again, in the way that lines up, I remember at my peripheral vision running through the subway station of Piccadilly Circus and seeing an office that said Emergency Accommodation Centre, almost like an acne sign and a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Um, so I ran back there and sure enough, I said, they said, have you got a job? And I said, yeah, I start tomorrow. Um, they said, yeah. <laughs> so they got me into a working man's um, hostel on the outskirts of London, which was dirt cheap. So I had just about enough money with me to to cover it and it's like four people to a room it's the smelliest room you can imagine <laughs> I turned up at two o'clock not having a clue what I was doing and it turned out I was a swing showman which meant I was a scene changer on a massive production of uh, of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard and um and yeah my world changed I, I worked as a scene changer and I worked backstage in theatres for the next few years I eventually worked my way up to stage manager um i played in a rock band for a while to get that out of my system i was horrific um, um then i joined the bbc i took a kind of big pay cut and went back to being a pa uh, to get into where there was cameras and uh, i started at the, uh, the bbc and that's why i discovered my kind of comedy chums um working with them getting them coffee and uh, and just being a general gopher and I kind of worked my way up through the system there as an assistant director. And, and then I asked if I could direct something. I knew there was a show coming up with two very funny comedians called Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. They were doing a kind of deconstruction of a game show called Shooting Stars. And I said, well, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to be the first assistant, the floor manager, the location manager, you know, can I also direct it? Because it's just a panel game. And they said, yeah, sure. It's maybe 30,000 pounds per episode budget um, for the entire show. Um, wow. So I, I just directed the shit out of it. Um, I, <laughs> I did this thing where I suggested we do this quiz round where we had clips from movies and I would, we would do a kind of our comedy version of a clip. So I remember doing a shot for shot pastiche of the scene from The Omen where, uh, where Damon's on his bicycle with a, with a tricycle and knocks his mum over the stairs. Um, uh, so it, so it, I used this kind of uh, show to actually practice directing, I suppose. And the show won the BAFTA that year for best... Um, Wow. Best entertainment based comedy show and that launched my directing career in the comedy world uh, in that classic way that success somewhat begets success so suddenly I was in with this bunch of brilliant young comedians when we made the fast show the sketch show which became very popular from that I made my first narrative series a comedy drama called the royal family which was very popular in the UK and I'm very proud of it because I'm um, kind of before the office was ever around I did this kind of fly on the wall film camera um, treatment of just a very bare bones, but and yet it was very funny um, and had a lot of heart. I'm very proud of that still. And the, and the rest, you know, as I say, before I completely send all your audience to sleep, um, was, it, was yeah, that took me into my first feature, Ali G. Ali G in the house, yeah, yeah. Which was great stuff here. And, and Reach These Shores, which most of what you had done had not. So your your reputation as a comedy director, did that lead to you being brought to the States to do Entourage? Entirely, yes. Um, but, but a few missteps along the way. Um, I made <laughs> Ali G and I think, uh, and I made my second feature, The Big White, which, um, which I don't think I'm being, doing a disservice to anybody. I had this brilliant cast um, with brilliant Robin Williams, Woody Harrelson, um, and uh, Holly Hunter uh, and um, I wish I could direct that film now instead of then I think I'd have probably made a better fist of it um, I, 
I, I wish I'd served them better. The film did fine. It wasn't a disaster, but it didn't really make money. And, um, and it didn't, you know, and it kind of stalled my forward progress. And I didn't know really what to do with myself. Um, it also happened that I was going through a really messy breakup of my first marriage at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of resorted to making commercials to just to kind of pay the mortgage. And, uh, but really, I'd really, I, I had no idea what to do with myself. And, and out of the blue came this call from HBO saying, do you want to do an episode of Entourage? And it was like, a, it was a life raft to a drowning man, really, figuratively. And so I, I jumped on a plane and went to LA and uh, um, my life completely changed. Um, it was a complete reboot. Um, I loved the writer, Doug Allen, who was fantastically trusting of me. And I, after one or two episodes, they offered me the producer-director roles when I ended up directing you know, more than half of each season. Uh, and uh, I met my wife there, Amy Westcott, the costume designer. Um, right. We have children together and we live in Brooklyn now together. Um, everything in my life um, got better because of that opportunity. So up until now, you've been doing pretty much exclusively comedy. Hmm. Once Upon a Time pilot comes along, and that's not a comedy. It's something very cinematic, very fantastical. You're working with special effects and all kinds of things. Was that an intentional career choice or was that an offer made to you? But it, it certainly turned around what you were doing from then on. I'd said to my, I have a brilliant television agent in America, Zach Drucker at WME. And um, and he just, he knows my taste and he knows what I was trying to do and tricks kind of expand my gamut of storytelling. Um, and uh, he sent me the script saying, this is cool. What do you think? Uh, and I read it and just thought it was amazing. It had such heart and uh, and great scope. And and that scope particularly was something I was craving because I was getting a touch of it, obviously, with Entourage. And part of my kind of mission on Entourage was to make it a little more kind of cinematic, if you like, without losing that immediacy and, and intimacy. Um, uh, but this was a chance to do something that was totally stylized. Um, uh, and... Uh, and with this crazy production um, timetable of uh, that is the the kind of madness of network pilot season, which doesn't really exist perhaps in the same way these days, but but back in 2011, it very much did. Um, and uh, so I I went in to talk to Adam and Eddie, uh, our, our mutual friends, um, and um, I can't remember what I said, but I made some statement about um, one key relationship, I think, um, I can't remember the key relationship. It was between the boy and his and his mother about what had to work and where my focus would be in connecting the relationship. And and I remember um, Adam just kind of sitting up in his chair and grabbing a baseball bat, and I thought he was about to club me. Um, <laughs> excited. Um, um, and then it just became one of those lovely three-way meetings where we're suddenly all charging through. And uh, and I love that, as, as I'm sure you do as well, their whole bearing, their whole way of being and that warmth and humanity and empathy that they have. I could see how we could have a swashbuckling fairy tale adventure with a little bit of contemporary edge, but also that innate humanity and warmth. And, and Yeah, uh, it's very emotional. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the most emotional scene I've ever directed was in an episode I did called Beauty, where mm-hmm. um, Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. Beauty dies, she ages and dies. And oh. Robert stays the same age of course and there were tears on the set it was an amazingly deep experience and you know when i first got the call to uh see if i would direct an episode Mm -hmm. about a disney 
series about uh, fairy tales. I don't know. And then I saw it and I started looking at episodes and it blew me away, the quality of the show and the depth of it and the commitment to the drama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I felt exactly the same. I just I just loved it. And, you know, and, uh, you know, they were I could tell they were concerned at my kind of lack of, you know, big scale work at that stage there would be a couple of comments very polite comments like you know can we have some quite big shots over yeah i got this don't worry um <laughs> i just charged into it with them and just you know both feet in up in vancouver and around british columbia where we shot and uh and just yeah just with the brilliant mark worthington this lovely production designer we just kind of created this world really just um uh, on fast forward and um and it just you know came together with beautiful cast um um, a really happy experience and it never even occurred to me that it was actually perhaps the first thing I'd done that had no specific comedy element to it it just seemed like a really cool story to tell with great heart was there something did you do any special prep work knowing that you were going to be diving headfirst into a special effects of each show I didn't really have time to be honest. I remember becoming <laughs> so green to it. Um, I remember we would literally have eight hour. I remember visual effects meetings sat around the table in in the production office that were gone for eight, even more hours. They were they, they were just endless. But I knew that we I couldn't get up and walk away from the table. And I'd, until we sorted it out, there wasn't you know we had to shoot in a week's time or something. So there wasn't that let's go away and mull this and come back to the table. It had to be kind of hashed out in real time, which was I suppose I'm sure for anybody less obsessed with the project than me must have been torturous but I was <laughs> just had to understand how to achieve it I couldn't walk onto set and be in any gray zone you just have to shoot too fast and be you know so decisive to move forward positively in that situation so actually it was it was like a big film school as well yeah that's what amazing stories was to me as someone who started out as a writer and then Stephen giving me an opportunity to direct an episode it was just like and before we did, we'd sit down with my storyboards. He'd asked me to storyboard the whole episode and to be able to sit with this man as and go over them one by one by one and have him go, oh, nice, nice, nice. Was, <laughs> what what a, an enabling experience that can be. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a confidence bolster, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. Now, there's another change in direction in in a dramatic sense in your work succession mm. you've done 13 episodes of that i think at least mm. yeah. and one of the best series in the history of television in in my way and the whole idea of dealing with the elite and the entitled mm. in this show seems to have drifted over a little bit into what you did with the menu which i love um, but tell me about your experience with Succession, because it really was a shot in the dark and unlike anything else out there. Yes, it seemed at the time, I remember talking with Jesse Armstrong, the show's creator, and uh, with our first call, a getting to know you call, you know, oh, can we play together nicely? And um, I remember him saying, yes, he, I, I was asking him what he thought the show was, what his, what his intentions were as a writer. And he said, well, I suppose it's that very... Um, out of fashion thing I suppose it's a satire he said almost apologetically and uh, and uh, which seems um, it seems strange now that satire is the absolute roaring you know uh, the, the uh, thing of the moment um, but um, back then it really wasn't so there was no uh, but still it was so beautifully kind of unapologetic with the characters um, didn't give a damn if you liked anybody or not and I thought that was so bold um, 
it's funny for yeah, me. Yeah, there are no really nice people in that cast. They really aren't. Um, but that, you know, the attraction to me was still there, even though, at least on the surface, they're really quite horrible people. It was, again, it's a lifelong obsession of why they behave in that way. You know, I'm sure that's not their natural state and they don't see themselves as evil people. So why are they behaving like that? And, and that examination now over four seasons, really, of just kind of uh, trying to find ways to peel back the layers and understand the context of their behavior um, is really just a fascination for me. And, and, and that continues into the menu. There's some really unpleasant people in that, you know, in that dining room in the menu, but, um, and then, you know, framed in a very different way through the, through the genre of the thriller, you know, thriller horror comedy. Um, but, um, but it's still an examination of, of humans and, and why they behave the way they do. Well, and particularly the idea of class, which we don't think of being in existence in the U.S. as much as in the U.K., mm. it's tremendously all about that. Here you have this group of people who can afford to spend 12,000, 12, you know, however much money it is mm. uh, to be a part of this menu experience. Yeah. And everything is so filled with pretension and creating art out of what is sustenance. Mm. And you also have a production design it's style over uh, over substance you know it looks beautiful and and stylized and sleek but it's really uncomfortable yes. so it, it's a fascinating approach to how you made the movie of the menu it's really this it's just there is a basic absurdity at the center of this idea that something that i do not enjoy which is a very self-conscious you know, uh, a way of achieving sustenance, a way of eating, uh, as you say, um, I'm paying a huge amount for the privilege of being in quite an uncomfortable situation. And then so you take that to, just so that you can feel, you know, have some kind of badge of honour, so you can feel raised above the hoi polloi, so that you can feel superior in some level, that, so, that, so that the ego is fed, if not the stomach. Um, and, <laughs> And that idea was such a beautiful absurdity at the center of the of the story um, that it almost then speaks for itself because that whole idea of actually creating experiences, which in my opinion, are actually not necessarily particularly pleasurable, but having to pay a huge premium for them um, so that somebody with a lot of money can can kind of pin it on and say, I can have that and somebody else can't, um, is, is such an absurdity. It's almost like with one tick of the, of the storytelling brush, the satire is almost taken care of. It screams to itself because it's ludicrous um, and unsustainable, except it does sustain it. It keeps going, doesn't it? The, um, um, so that led me to focus actually on the human uh, the flaws that the, the, the why are those people like that why do they feel the need to spend that money to, to show off like that to be seen what 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 is ego and why do we need to feed it so much um both with the diners and indeed with chef Slowick. you know one of the a real bonding thing with chefs with Rafe and I Rafe finds who played chef Slowick in the first place was that we both saw the chef as not as a movie baddie but actually as a as an artist who is in pain because is consumed with self-loathing for the bad choices his ego has allowed him to make throughout his career, something that both Rafe and I could relate to very strongly, as I'm sure <laughs> artists can. Well, tell me about the approach. I mean, this is unabashedly a horror film, although it is a satirical horror film. Tell me about your approach. This is not necessarily a genre you have much background in, and yet it's very self-assured. Were there films or, or filmmakers that you drew upon when you were prepping? Very, very much so. In, in terms of performance, in terms of keeping 
keeping that naturalism and sense of immersion and spontaneity in there. Uh, with any ensemble, I, I, I worship Robert Altman's approach to ensemble casts, and that is somewhat reductive, but okay, for the sake of brevity or economy, um, that all the actors are on set all the time, everybody's mic'd all the time, and that everybody can talk over each other, and, in, uh, and that, um, uh, and that I asked, I asked them and encouraged them to improvise beyond beyond the scripted word, even during the scene. And I never expect them to do the same thing twice in two different takes. Um, and the camera can find anybody at any time. When you set up those almost kind of dogma-esque rules, um, it's incredibly liberating for the actors. They can explore constantly like a freeform jazz uh, group. Um, and, and out of that, for me, comes a sense of immersion and spontaneity where I never feel any underlying sense of repetition or or, or, or or take six or take eight performance everything feels fresh and immediate so that was um in terms of performance that was that in terms of how to weaponize the idea of almost the paradox of how to make a, a, a story that is set so much in one space cinematic and kinetic and alive um then i looked to to, to Parasite, Bong's masterpiece, uh, where he weaponizes the architecture and uses it as such a dynamic trap um, for, for, the, for the cast members um, uh, and for the characters to, to bounce off each other in and for that conflict. And, and of course, out of that tension that you can crank up because there's nowhere for it to go, there's no way for it to vent. It's just building and building in this pressure cooker. Then of course you can snap that you know, with, with, with a release of comedy um, and, and, and the natural audience dynamic is to be hungry for that, to, to appreciate that, that, that gasp of oxygen before cranking it up again. So it's so. Very Hitchcockian in that sense. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So exactly. Yeah. Um, containing, so containing the, the action in that space, the trick was then of course, to make the space itself dynamic and have layers to it so that so that it uh, so it continues to evolve uh, uh, and to be a character uh, to to be a, a force and an emotion and uh, amongst many other things but two two examples um, first of all I wanted the camera when it's down amongst the diners and immersed within the diners that because of that open plan connection to the kitchen to that militia to the almost kind of military choreography of the work and the threat of the uh, of the cooks in the kitchen that you would feel their presence visually even if it was kind of with the depth of field slightly soft focus upstage you would feel their threat visually and if you flip 180 from that that beautiful huge asymmetric floor to ceiling window looking out on the the gorgeous ocean representing freedom the thing that they crave but cannot achieve um through this almost unbreakable glass um, that as the sun goes down that allowed us to, to to effectively kind of sharpen the spotlight on the on the cast and uh, and to, to put them under more pressure as the light fades amongst them uh, in in terms of that ticking clock on their own ability to escape that night so in those ways we we kind of weaponize the space to keep it keep kinetic energy and keep it dy dynamic in an evolving space that's great. Um, because we are in a virtual uh, press tour here, I'm being told that uh, we are pressed for time. But I just want to ask you if there were specific films that you watched or showed to cast and crew that may have conveyed some of the ideas that you wanted to pro provide. Yeah, the, the first day of rehearsal, rehearsal for me is sitting around with the actors and talking for days, um, just because that I think tunes everybody into the same movie. Um, the yeah, I asked everybody to go home and watch the Exterminating Angel, Bourne Wells, um, uh -huh. two brilliant movie specifically because I loved 
in Bunuel's film, that dawning sense of culpability that I felt he gave the, the characters. And, and I, I thought that would be a lovely thing to chart with our diners, um, that, that the whispers of Chef Slowick throughout the courses were gradually peeling back the layers of their vanity to, to find their, their vulnerable, innocent selves. And, and uh, with a huge benefit of being able to shoot the film almost entirely chronologically, we could chart that together. So yeah, Bunuel's film was huge for that. Um, that, that was that was a specific homework. Yeah, it's sort of a modern Le Grand Bouffe in reverse, in a sense. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, I thank you so much. I love the movie. It's an original. It's not like anything else out there. And I wish you all the best of luck with it. And thank you for joining us on The Slab here. Thank you, Meg. It's been really lovely talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.